0: Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. It's the weekend. You go to the beach, find a nice spot in the sand, and just before you hit the water, you notice flags flying at the lifeguard stand. Red, purple, etc. What do they mean? Meteorologist Erica Delgado goes to the source.
1: Hi, South Florida. This is Lieutenant Stoyanova with Miami Beach Fire Rescue, Ocean Rescue Division, hoping to keep you safe when going to the beach and before going into the water. Plus,
0: sail drones in the news again. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez with the update.
1: Brian
2: Conan, Vice President of Ocean Mapping, joins us on this week's Weather or Not to talk about the Sail Drone Headquarter, St. Petersburg, Florida, that will be responsible for all of Ocean Mapping.
0: Whether or Not, we'll be right back with the Beach Flag Story. The
3: best app
0: from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app.
3: Get the latest forecast models.
0: My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone.
3: It's yours free from the Storm Station. Seven News. Whistles blown at the beach. A nice breeze. Hot sand and picture perfect weather. All things we experience on any given beach day and bring back memories from when we were children. Except now you reach the sand, and you see those beach flags waving high on the lifeguard stand, but unsure of what they stand for. What exactly do they mean? While many of us, myself included, ignore the flags at our local area beaches, we should pay extra close attention to what each flag color means before getting in the water. They could actually save our lives. The 7 Weather Team is diving a little farther to get all the details on each of these beach flags. Take a listen joining me today is lieutenant desi stoyanova from the miami beach fire department ocean rescue division to explain all the beach flags to us hi desi thank you so much for being here with us today
1: hi erica thank you
3: so much for having me in your podcast and actually i should refer to you as lieutenant stoyanova that's the proper way but thank you so much for being us uh, of course we have the summer season right around the corner and we here in south florida we have weather where we can be at the beach at any given time of the year and many of us have seen these, these beach flags hanging from the lifeguard stands, and a lot of them just really don't know what they mean. So let's just clear all of that up for everyone that's listening today. And and we'll start with the purple beach flag, which is one of the flags that many of us see at our local area beaches, but we're not really familiar or sure of the meaning. Can you tell us a little bit about the purple beach flag? And does that mean it's safe for the general public to go in the water when it's visible?
1: The uh, purpose of the purple flag is to notify the public about dangerous marine life in our open waters. We are specifically talking about jellyfish and Portuguese man of wars. Those are the two types of marine life that we, the lifeguards, warn the beachgoers about uh, because we do not post flags for predator fish, which is a very common question but the probability to get stung by a man of war is far greater than being harmed by a predator fish. And this is something very common we have from uh, the beach patrons. When they see the purple flag and they ask us about the meaning, um, and when we say it's about dangerous marine life and they automatically think it's about predator fish, But then we go on and further explain that it's about moon jellyfish and men of wars. And uh, the purple flag at Miami Beach will be flown together with the yellow flag. And I will later explain why when we get to the meaning of the the yellow flag. Um, Also, what I would like for your listeners to know is that um, usually during the summer seasons, we have the regular moon jellyfish and the season for men of wars is from November. It can drag all the way to the end of May. Oh, wow. So, so it's not, and like I mentioned before, it's our, our beach season isn't
3: necessarily just during the summer, but as you can see, even through, um, through the winter months, all the way into May, we could see these, uh, these dangerous marine life. Now I know you talked about the purple beach flag, um, being hung up with another, and we'll get to the yellow one, but let's start off with the green beach flag, which is probably a given for many, but just given its color. But for those who are not familiar with beach flags at all, can you explain to us what the green beach flag represents and if it means if it's safe for the general public to go swimming when we see it at the lifeguard stands?
1: Absolutely, Erica, you guessed that correctly, that the green flag is probably familiar to the public because one can associate it with a green traffic light. And in fact, uh, when we teach the children during career days when we visit the schools and we want to teach them about uh, water and beach safety, we do tell the children that uh, one way to remember uh, the flags is very easy because they can associate it with the meaning of the traffic lights. So, yes, the green flag means low hazard and calm conditions. But because we talk about open water, which is a nature that we have no control over, low hazard doesn't mean that everyone is safe. We still advise the beach patrons, of course, to be careful and swim near a lifeguard. And um, also better don't go far from shore if you can't swim. The calm conditions uh, designates that there are no rip currents per se, But there are still deep waters where anyone can get in trouble. So we still want the public to be aware of that and to be safe.
3: Of course. So then the green beach flag, even though we are expecting calm conditions that day, one should exercise caution when going into the water, whether you're a strong swimmer or not.
1: Absolutely.
3: Earlier, you mentioned that the purple beach flag, which is for the hazardous marine jellyfish or could be in the water that could actually sting you. You mentioned that the possibility of that one being waved with a yellow beach flag. So can you explain what the yellow beach flag means
1: for us? Of course. So the yellow flag means uh, medium hazard with moderate surf and currents it advises the public to be cautious exactly because there are currents and if you are non swimmer or if uh, you don't feel that you are a strong swimmer it is always a wiser choice to be in a protected beach and to stay close to shore regardless of the swimming level of the bathers and because the yellow flag like i said means cautiousness when we fly purple flag we fly it together with yellow which uh, you know, the color suggest would mean be cautious because of jellyfish and to men of wars present.
3: Okay. And, and I know that earlier you mentioned, you know, when you teach on career day, the uh, colors of the beach flags are easy to remember based on the traffic lights. The next one in line would obviously be the red beach flag. And although it would be probably obvious for some, especially given here in the States, given its color, um, some may feel that if they're strong swimmers, Even with a red beach flag, they can outswim any hazard. So, can you tell us a little bit about the red beach flag and what one should know if they see it up at the lifeguard stand?
1: Yes, I would be happy to. And I'm going to add, after the meaning of the flag, I will explain about rip currents because this flag is also associated with rip currents and a lot of people do not know what rip current is. So, red flag would make you stop and think before you go, as the color suggested. Red means high hazard, which is high surf and strong rip currents. Rip currents are very dangerous for all bathers, especially for those who can't swim and for children as well. Many people do not know what a rip current is, so therefore I would like to explain a little bit about it. A rip current is created by high winds and surf, and it looks like a constant running water, which breaks on shore and returns in the open sea, through the point of least resistance. What that means is the following. Our beaches, the topography of our beaches consists of uh, sandbars, which is the shallower area and deep spots between the sandbars for the simplest explanation. The deep spot uh, between the sandbar will be the point of least resistance for the water to return back in open sea after it breaks on shore. That in turn creates that deeper channel, which pulls out bathers in presence of high winds and high surf. Also, rip currents can be perpendicular to shore, diagonal or parallel to shore. And in fact, they're very, very hard to spot by the general public. That's why I'm mentioning that uh, they can be perpendicular, diagonal or parallel. They're not just one type. They're many types. One tip for the public to be able to recognize a rip current is that darker water of the running channel that creates that I just explained. And uh, the sandbars create white foam and the darker water would be between the sandbars. And of course, the biggest benefit for our visitors would be to talk to a lifeguard when they see that we fly a, a red flag. And uh, also for the general, as a general rule for the public, regardless of the flag for the day, it always is a good idea and a wiser choice to swim near a lifeguard. And if in doubt, do not go.
3: Absolutely. And, And, you know, I've heard it before. You know, people tell us, oh, but I'm a strong swimmer. Um, I can outswim anything. So when any of those flags are up, like you said, it's probably best to swim near a lifeguard stand, but also to talk to the lifeguard to make sure they you know exactly what the conditions are like. Now, we just talked about the red beach flag and the hazards, the high hazards that pertain to them. But even worse, we've seen a double red beach flag. So what exactly does that mean? And are people such even strong swimmers exempt from what that means?
1: That's a very good question, Erica. Thanks for asking that. Um, no one is exempt from warnings we post on our lifeguard towers. To further explain what a double red flag means is um, the water, we adv- with the double red flag, we advise the bathers that it's not safe to go in the water. And, and that could be because of the following reasons. Uh, First, the water might be contaminated. A second reason could be that the beach is not safe due to lightning in the area. And uh, one more reason is if we have migration of a predator fish, which happens very rare. Uh, We also have used double red flag during winds higher than 35, 40 miles an hour or uh, pre-hurricane winds when nature really speaks and waters are very, very dangerous. All of these examples are warnings to the public. And we, uh, very, we hope very much that they comply for the sake of their safety if they see that we fly a double red flag.
3: Of course. And we're all very familiar here, especially during hurricane season with tropical systems coming very close to our coastline. We'll probably see that double red flag up on the lifeguard stands now is there a scenario where lifeguards are advised not to go in the water such as in the event that there is a swimming emergency with the general public and one of the hazardous swimming flags are up that day
1: good question erica the only situation a lifeguard may choose not to go on a rescue would be if uh, the lightnings are falling left and right so to speak But then yet again, if we have such a weather, the lifeguards would be clearing the water in the beach because it's not safe for bathers to stay out in the open. And, you know, I've been in this career for 20 years and I've never seen or heard a lifeguard not responding to a rescue because of a danger, say, a predator fish in the water or there's lightning in the area. I couldn't imagine someone wanting to to stay in the open in South Florida during such weather, I think this would be the biggest hazard for a lifeguard if a lifeguard has to choose, should I go or should I not?
3: Of course.
1: But yes, but again, you know, lifeguards are very proud of their profession and they are always ready uh, to save a life and they do everything possible to help the beach visitors. So yeah like i said i've never i've never seen or heard about uh, a lifeguard not wanting to help
3: well proud of their profession as they should be as they continue to as you all continue to save lives day in and day out and we you know we see the stories we run the stories a lot here in the in at the station just you know high risk of rip currents and there's always someone that unfortunately could get stuck in it and and, and your lifeguards, you guys go in there no matter what. So definitely should be proud of your profession. Now, is there anything that your department would want the general public to know before heading to local beaches or getting in the water? I know you mentioned talking to lifeguards first.
1: I would say we would like the public to touch bases with us, the lifeguards, about the beach conditions for the day, what is permitted on the beach and what is not. Even though we have the flags as a warning at our lifeguard towers, it is always safer to talk to a professional, by my opinion. And in doing that, the beach patrons will have fun and enjoy themselves while being safe. And this is what we really want. And also maybe I would add to um, also check the weather before they go out on the beach, listen to the news because I know the news also announces when we have strong rip currents so that the public would be safe. Maybe to be mindful of the environment as well because nowadays we have to protect, protect our environment Um, For example, don't bring glass to the beach, use less plastic materials. And if you're um, uh, on a boat on your leisure day, one should gather the waste and bring it back and dispose it properly instead of uh, polluting the ocean. This would be a really good message for the public, I think. Also, something worth knowing for the public to know is how to treat a jellyfish sting. If it's a regular moon jellyfish, The stink is actually not hurtful, it's more bothersome. And um, we would like the public to know is to, for them to always go to the lifeguard tower. And uh, our treatment is we spray them with a vinegar and um, we tell them that it will take usually about 20 to 30 minutes for the sting in itself to go away. They can safely go back to the water. On the other hand, though, if it's not a jellyfish, if it's during the man o' war season, the treatment for man o' war for a, a, uh, being stung by a man o' war it's a little different, and it really it depends on each person. Throughout the years from practice, we found that adults and children react differently because children are very much afraid of pain, and when you get stung by a man of war, it is actually painful. And what helps them is when we apply a cold pack on the side of the stinging, which numbs the area a little bit and it eases them. But anyway, the first thing, if somebody gets stung by a man of war, is to go to the lifeguard. And what we do is we take a with glove hands, we take the um, tentacles off the skin. And after that, uh, we ask them if they would like to be sprayed um, with vinegar because everybody reacts differently. We ask them for a choice of a cold pack or a hot pack. And children usually choose cold for the reason I said, and adults would prefer warm. What the warm pack does is it warms the skin, so it opens up uh, the arteries on the on, that are superficially on the skin. The pain goes away faster. And we also advise them it's better to move than just stay in one place.
3: Now, do people usually... Do people normally know if they've been stung by a man-of-war or just a regular jellyfish? Or is that something that the lifeguard uh, usually tells them one way or the other?
1: They would know because the man-of-war stinging is very different. Not very, but it's different uh, pain-wise from the regular moon jellyfish. And whenever we have the season from November to the end of uh, May we uh, when they come to us and they tell us hey uh, we got stung we ask them where and we look at them and uh, sometimes most of the time actually they realize and they're like because it's so painful for them Mm. but in the in the cases when they don't realize we look at them and we see the site of the stinging if there is any tentacle still there because it keeps stinging until you remove them
3: Wow. Well, that's that's very interesting to know and definitely something that the South Florida community should definitely know before getting into the water. So thank you again for sharing your knowledge with us. Very helpful information. You. So the seven weather team would like to thank the Miami Beach Fire Department, Ocean Rescue Division, and of course, Lieutenant Desi Stoyanova for taking the time to explain what each beach flag means and their daily tasks of putting their lives on the line to keep us all safe. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And thank you, Lieutenant Stoyanova, for joining us today. That's all for today from the 7 Weather Team. I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado.
0: Thank you, Erica. Sail drones when we return. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, 7's got you covered. 24-7.
2: We'll see storms developing. We have a
0: long line of rainfall here. We are the storm station. 7 News.
2: Today on whether or not we talk about Sail Drone's new headquarters here in Florida. And we are talking to Captain Brian Conan, who has served 28 years in the U.S. Navy in posts including Director of the Maritime Safety Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Superintendent of the U.S. Naval Observatory, and Commanding Officer of the Navy's Fleet Survey Team. Prior to Sail Drone, he was director of the Hydrographic Science Research Center at the University of Southern Mississippi. He is a chartered marine scientist who serves as editor of the International Hydrographic Review. And this is exciting news. Are you based here in Florida?
4: Um, I am not. Um, I actually live over near New Orleans.
2: Okay, so Sail Drone is opening up a headquarter in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about the location and why you chose that location?
4: Yeah. So um, actually it was a mutual acquaintance of mine who uh, had moved to St. Pete and was working at the Florida Institute of Oceanography. And he mentioned to me that there was a building that the city of St. Pete and their economic development group was uh, trying to attract people to. Um, I was visiting and we went and took a look at the building and we had been looking at Sail Drone for somewhere in the Gulf to operate from. And it made a lot of sense the facilities of that building right on the water uh, had a large uh, bay that we could work on the drones Um, just a great location plus the other tenants in the building so the maritime defense innovation hub there has a lot of really interesting tenants who are thinking in the maritime space and and so there's a lot of collaboration potential as well Um, not to mention the collaboration potential with university of south florida fio and other colleges and universities there in the, you know, in the Tampa area. It's just kind of a, a nice area. Plus uh, you add in the NOAA group that's there, USGS. Um, it just made a lot of sense for us uh, to, to locate our, our kind of our golf headquarters there.
2: Last year, I was able to talk to Andy when Sail Drone was launching and I was able to speak to an expert from NOAA, once those first images came in from the Cat 4 hurricane, and it's incredible what a sail drone can accomplish, and the fact that now we have a sail drone headquarter here in Florida for all of ocean mapping, that's a huge deal, so I'm super excited about that.
4: Right, we are too, you know, there's so much interest and funding now going towards ocean mapping in Florida, and when you look at the Gulf Coast side of Florida, much of that continental shelf has not been mapped, um, and the reason is it's really shallow, um, so it takes a long time to do with a traditional ship, and it becomes very expensive. Um, but now, you know, we have the capability to go out and do the ocean mapping with, you know, with drones that uh, don't care how long they stay at sea. They they you know, and they can they can do the work at a much lower price point. So. Um, combine that with you know the hurricane missions and um, other access to not just the Gulf but also the Caribbean uh, we really think this is going to be a great spot for us to you know not only deploy drones but also to bring them in and service them and then work with partners on you know internships and build our presence there in St. Pete.
2: Now can you explain to our listeners why is ocean mapping so vital to us?
4: Right. So only 20% of the um, world's oceans have been mapped. And so we really don't know what's down there. And when you look at the state of Florida specifically, and the waters around it, we're always trying to understand uh, what the, you know, the what we call the benthic environment, or what the what's happening on the seafloor, whether it's corals or fishing areas. Um, so there's a lot of reason to do it from a natural resource, from, A understanding the ocean. But even more importantly, I think in Florida, it's to basically help us better model what is happening to the ocean and tie that into coastal resilience, civil rise, and storm surge. And so if you don't have the good bathymetry or the good ocean mapping data, you can't actually do good modeling. And that's what I think is really going to pay off for Florida in the long run, is that type of, of work.
2: And how long do you think the mapping is going to take?
4: <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. It depends on how we do it. If we're using airborne drones to, or not drones, but airborne assets uh, to use LIDAR, it's, which is a laser that can penetrate the water and actually reflects off the bottom and gives you those depths. But those can only go down to maybe in really clear water, down to 40 meters. And so then you have this extensive shelf offshore of Florida. And if we want to map out to 200 meters, it's going to take a very long time. So I tell everyone, you know, it it depends on how many assets we bring to bear. If we use aircraft and ships and boats and USVs like a sail drone, you know, we can knock this out um, within the next. I would say, four to five years, you can scale up to do that. And you know we're standing by to, to scale up production of our vehicles so we can support that.
2: Okay. And how many sale drones approximately do you think will be used?
4: Don't really know. Um, the, the Florida government hasn't released the uh, request for proposals yet. In my mind, we would have six to 10 drones that would be continuously running um, with Probably half those out at one time, while the other half are in offloading data and getting serviced. I think if we had that, we could really make a big difference. But again, we'll have to see what the you know what the proposal looks like and how much of each type of asset is going to be used and who wins the award.
2: <laughs> and you had mentioned cruise ships as well. What type of information sail drones offer that's completely different than the cruise ships um, that can be used for ocean mapping?
4: Right. Oh, so survey ships, not cruise ships. Yeah,
2: I'm sorry. So survey ships.
4: <laughs> yeah, no. Um, well, we we try and tell people that we're not trying to replace the ships, but ships are very expensive because of the people on board. Correct. And so you want to use those ships for those unique um, functions like launching a, uh, a remotely operated vehicle to dive down and look at the bottom or an autonomous underwater vehicle um, or to do... Uh, sampling, or you know, just a whole lot of things that um, a, dr- a drone can't do. But the one thing that we can do really well, a sail drone can really map the ocean well. And when you do that, you don't have to have people on board. Um, so you've reduced risk, you've increased safety, um, we're not burning nearly as much fuel. I mean, a big difference there. So you're doing it in a very climate friendly way. And it gives you that 24 uh, 7 operations. You know, if you're on a small boat surveying, you can't stay out more than eight hours a day, right? The, per- the people have to go in, they have to, to sleep and eat and all those things. Sail drones don't care about that. They can stay out 24 uh, 7 for months at a time. And so you really get a lot more uh, bang for your buck when you're using these. Now, I'm also going to say they're not great for every situation. In the very shallow waters and the estuaries uh, on the coast of Florida, um, it's difficult for our sail drones to work, um, but we we know where we can can get into, and we should match up really well with that airborne lidar. And so that's, I think, that's the best solution: is to, you know, fly the airplane, use the lidar, get as deep as you can, and then match up with USV's to go out to deeper water.
2: And how is sail drone collaborating with the Florida Coastal Mapping Program?
4: So we've been, uh, you know, attendees at their seminars. We've given uh, presentations so they understand our capability. Um, It's really just kind of, you know, we're waiting to see, we're excited that they're doing it. Uh, They really have the lead in Florida from a state perspective on mapping their own waters, uh, which is great. Um, Alaska is also has a similar project. And so when you think about states with these big coastlines and this big amounts of unmapped waters, and looking to say, all right, we're going to take care of this ourselves because it's really important for our, our coastal resilience and under, you know and protecting our communities and our natural resources. So, um, you know, it was great for us just to fully understand the scope and the priorities of the Florida Coastal Mapping Project. And I, you know, real kudos to them. they put a lot of effort into this and it's been a, a coalition of the willing for a while. And now there's actually some funding behind it. And I think that's going to be a great benefit to residents of Florida.
2: Speaking of benefits, what do you think will be like the short-term and long-term benefits?
4: Well, I think in the short-term, you know, we will help with safety of navigation. We'll be able to update nautical charts. We'll be able to potentially find uh, unmapped wrecks and other things um, which are always of interest to fishermen because that tends to (laughs) attract uh, fish and things. Um, but in the long term, it's really goes to that climate change modeling um, improvements to weather forecasting. And that that was the whole purpose of the hurricane. uh sail drones were to understand intensification because we don't understand it very well. So, you know, as the scientists at NOAA analyze our data and improve the modeling, you know, that's going to take a little while to get you know, verified and and then back around to providing improved forecasts for coastal residents. And I, but I think in my mind, we're gonna be able to offer, you know, a more informed warning that, and earlier so that you can make that decision whether to evacuate or not uh, sooner or uh, to understand how you're gonna be impacted if sea level rises by a certain amount, you know, am I gonna lose my house? Am I going to, you know, is my business going to be underwater? Um, so all those things I think will take some time but initially, I think it'll be that uh, mapping piece will provide a lot more knowledge of the seafloor and probably spur a lot more scientific analysis because we're going to see things and scientists are going to go, we had no idea that was there. Now let's go study you know, what it is, why it's there. So really looking forward to getting that data in-house.
2: It'd be very interesting to be able to get information on other coral habitat as well on how we can monitor it and also protect it too, because those are some vulnerable locations as well. And so important in protecting our coastline, too.
4: Right. Yes. Now, the other thing that, you know, we are using this as an ocean mapping uh, center, but we're also able to run maritime security missions. And so, you know, being able to patrol offshore and see um, illegal fishing, as an example, you know, if there are, are people coming in and fishing our waters who aren't supposed to be there, or potentially looking at counter drug trafficking, uh, counter human trafficking, and other, you know, things that the Coast Guard and uh, Border Patrol need more eyes on our our water borders, um, because it is a big ocean out there. And so what we can offer is, you know, a a high resolution camera system, that has machine learning to recognize objects on the water, um, and be able to report that back in real time, so that if there is something that doesn't look right, someone can make the call to send an aircraft or a ship uh, to investigate. Um, and I think that's, you know, really important, especially when you look at Tampa and the amount of uh, shipping that goes in and out of Tampa, it's a huge port. And so really, really looking forward to kind of demonstrating that capability and then participating with, you know, both the Coast Guard, Border, uh, Custom Border Patrol, and the military in protecting our waters.
2: Can you describe to our listeners Florida's blue economy—the importance of Florida's blue economy and how can we protect it?
4: Yeah, I mean, the obviously, uh, when you look out at what happens around Florida, starting everything from recreational fishing to commercial fishing to cruise lines, um, offshore aquaculture, some potential for uh, some offshore wind maybe down the road. The the navy. Uh, that's there, the Coast Guard that's there. There's so much in just tourism in general and scuba diving and all those things that, that folks like to do, you know, that's all blue economy. And so being able to uh, invest in protecting that by understanding it and by making sure that you know what you have, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we, we don't know the ocean like we do the surface of the moon or the surface of Mars. And we haven't as a country put forth the money to to go out and understand that. So we need to be able to have that baseline information so that if there are changes that are going to impact the blue economy or impact us, you know, our natural resources. So things like coral bleaching and the other things we worry about, um, being able to have that information and then detect change. All right. we, we, We know this is what it looked like. Now we're seeing something that doesn't you know, match what we collected before. Why is that? You know, is someone dumping something offshore? Is, you know, are we seeing runoff that from agriculture that is affecting offshore? Um, How do we deal with uh, the hazardous uh, algal blooms? Um, You know, all the red tides that everybody loves, (laughs) you know? so, So, you know, because we're seeing more of those types of events, we need to understand and model what to understand why they're happening because we don't really know um, and these you know the sail drones will provide that kind of information both the meteorological the oceanographic and the ocean mapping piece to help understand why these things are happening and then hopefully point us to how we can slow them or stop them and prepare uh, to make sure we understand uh, new things that are coming so it's you know obviously Florida is a huge blue economy state all of, the, all of our coastal states have some form of, of blue economy, whether it's you know, oil and gas, or further west in the Gulf, um, or if you go up in the Northeast and then, you know, the lobster fishermen and, and other fishermen that are up there, um, you know, we've, we've worked in all of those different areas for those economies. And a lot of the times it, you just need more sensors and more eyes on the ocean to help understand what's happening. And that's that's what we think we can do with a sail drone
2: and you are also retired captain from the Navy correct
4: yes I did 28 years in the Navy as uh, an oceanographer and uh, I did a, a couple of years in academia and then uh, moved over to sailboat just over a year ago so
2: and you have quite the impressive background because I oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my,
4: we, that's my as we call that I love me well you know it's all the, all the things you get in there so you, you can see it, it goes up pretty high too so.
2: Congratulations for everything you've accomplished you're bringing a wealth of knowledge to sail drone and 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 just the fact you can use a sail drone for so many things and the ex- expansion of SailDrone is incredible. I'm super excited to hear the findings and what's going to happen down the road with sail drone too.
4: Well thanks for that. We're we're definitely excited and it's a uh, we're we're getting very busy and that's a good thing. You know as a as a startup this is the point you want to get to where now you can start to scale up your operations and and not be doing research and development, but actually, you know, you have an article that people want. And that, that's where we are. And so we're going to start building both the, the big drone, the surveyor that transited to, from San Francisco to Hawaii doing deep ocean mapping, as well as our mid sized drone that we're launching right now called the Voyager. Um, and that one will be the workhorse in Florida because it'll have the, the shallow water sonar to map the ocean as well as the radar and and other and the cameras to do the maritime security
2: mission. Thank you so much for your time. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the Chief works right here. Seven's Chief Meteorologist, Phil
3: Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years.
0: As soon as we get information, we bring it to you
2: instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us cool. safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier.
0: And now, here's a Phil Fact. According to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, from the Titanic to Christopher Columbus's Santa Maria, the oceans are home to around 3 million shipwrecks. Next week, on whether or not, how do you say it? Uranus or Uranus? Plus, how did this large planet get its name? We'll have that on our next episode, which drops July 12th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.